Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast. This is Bill Allen, and I last night we launched the Seven Day Flip series on YouTube with Tyler Jensen, and I'm off a major high from that. A ton of people have watched it. I've gotten so much great feedback. I just want to say thank you to my team, thank you to Tyler, his staff, all that stuff. Episode one was a huge success. I cannot wait to show the next 9, 10, 11 episodes of this first season. So if you haven't checked it out yet, go to YouTube. Go to our seven-figure flipping channel on YouTube. Um, we'll put the link in the show notes and check it out. They're following along as Tyler and his team flip four houses in seven days. And what, I, what I'm doing right now is jumping into the flipping series. So a bunch of stuff about flipping houses and building a business because efficiency is really important. And today's guest is a phenomenal one. It's Jay Scott, and you guys probably know him from Bigger Pockets, maybe some of the books he's written or the podcasts that he's been on or run. But uh, Jay Scott is um, pretty well known in the house flipping side of things, but he's also a great business owner. And uh, the book on flipping houses that he wrote with Bigger Pockets was the first book that I picked up as I was trying to figure out how to flip my first house. And it was a huge, very instrumental in my success. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into talking about business. So he's written a couple of blog posts and, and Facebook posts recently. And I grabbed those and said, let's dive into some of these things because the, the fundamentals of business are the same, whether it's flipping houses, wholesaling houses, um, or any type of business. And I talk about that a ton on here. But today we're going to dive into the 10 things. So the 10 things that Jay recommends that you do to build out your foundation. And then at the end, I'm going to tell you how you guys can get the other 10 um, the other 10 things. So he wrote, wrote like 20 different bullet points of things to look at. And we're going to dive into each one of them, hear a little bit about his story and uh, kind of put it all together for you. So hopefully wherever you are in your journey, if you're just getting started, if you are, are ramping up and scaling, or if you're at the point where I am, where you're only working a couple hours in your real estate business, it's going to help you. This is all about the business fundamentals. And I think it ties in really well to what Tyler's doing, all that efficiency stuff that they're doing and flipping these houses in seven days. And so I'm really excited to talk to Jay today. It was a phenomenal interview. I know you guys are really going to like it. So stay tuned, world theme music, and we'll jump right into it. Welcome to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast. Seven Figure Flipping is on a mission to help serious investors do more deals, make more money, work fewer hours, and get their lives back. Here's your host, Seven Figure Flipping CEO, Bill Allen. Hey, everybody. Today, I've got a really exciting show for you. I've got Jay Scott. So uh, you guys may know him on Facebook, Jason Scott. You may know him from some of his books, Jay Scott. And in fact, uh, when I heard about Jay on Bigger Pockets, um, you know, what I saw was he lived right in the neighborhood that I grew up. So he's moving to Maryland from Atlanta, I think. And hopefully I got the story right. He'll correct me if I'm wrong. But um, in Maryland, I grew up in Howard County. So not far from where uh, Jay moved. It looked like they were building a house, like following along on a blog. Just an amazing guy. And, you know, th his book, the book on flipping houses that he wrote for Bigger Pockets, was actually the start that I got. I was using that book for my first flip there in, um, down in Southern Maryland when I was stationed at Patuxent River, Maryland. So this is kind of an interesting story of finally kind of connecting with Jay on the podcast here. I'm really excited to talk to him today. And um, without further ado, uh, I don't think he needs a ton of introduction, but I'll let him kind of give a little backstory about himself, but I've got Jay Scott on the podcast today. Hey, Jay, how are you doing? Hey, how's it going, Bill? Thanks for having me here. Yeah, so did I get the story right? Let's start there. Yeah, um, it, it was uh, actually not a very exciting story. My wife and I were in the tech industry in California. Uh, 2008, we decided to get married. We decided to, uh, to relocate to the East Coast and do something other than tech because we were just both consumed. Um, it, when you're in the tech industry, you're basically working 8,800 hours a week. Uh, she was traveling a couple weeks a month. I was traveling a few weeks a month and it just, it wasn't conducive to starting a family. So 2008, we got married, we moved to the East coast. We we're looking for some new business to start. And long story short, before we found that new business, uh, we decided to flip a house. And that one flip turned to two, turned to 10, turned to 50. And, and before we knew it, we were, we were house flippers. Um, and so over the last 12 years, we've kind of branched out from house flipping, but we still flip houses. Uh, we do rentals, we do multifamily, we do some lending. Um, we do, we're getting ready to do our first syndication. Um, we do a lot of business stuff outside of real estate. So a lot of people think of me as a real estate person, but, uh, 
I'm more of a business guy than a real estate guy. We just kind of happen to have fallen into the business of real estate. Um, but we have our own businesses. I do some angel investing. And so I, I kind of, uh, I'm a big fan of multiple in income streams and, and doing lots of stuff. So everybody kind of knows me as the guy who flips houses. But, uh, but actually, if, if anything, these days, that's kind of a, the, a, a more minor part of my uh, business repertoire than, than anything. Well, I'm glad we're, we're having this discussion now because the, the, the purpose that the, the reason we have this podcast is not to just like flip one or two houses or a side hustle. We can show people how to do that and talk, talk through that. But what you said is being a business owner. And I think if, even if you're flipping houses, wholesaling houses, have apartment complexes, whatever it is, I think really there's got to be some sort of some end in mind, right? You're building something. And like we, we basically use this concept of freedom, whether it's financial freedom, time freedom, something like that. Like what is the vehicle to get to that place? So if you start there, then you can start building the foundation of a successful business from the beginning and really treat it like a business instead of a, another job. Like what I found, you're saying 80 to hundred hours a week. I was there. I was working that much, if not more, and then flipping houses on the side in the beginning. And it was just a second job. I was trying to figure out how to do it and systemize it and automate it and all that stuff. But I had no idea where to start. So that was my first two or three years in this business was just basically working my 80 to 100 hour week flying pl planes and helicopters for the Navy. And then on the side, it was another 80, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours before and after work that I was just on the hamster wheel, if you will. Yeah. So, and a lot of people don't realize that real estate is a business. Um, it's funny, for some reason, real estate, maybe it's because uh, real estate assets or inventory are really, really high priced. I mean, unlike if you own a typical business, let's say a shoe store or a restaurant or whatever, uh, your inventory is this, this stuff that costs maybe $10 or $50 or $100. Um, but in real estate, your inventory, your houses or your, your apartments or whatever your inventory is, um, these are hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so I think people think of real estate as being something different than a traditional business. But at the end of the day, real estate is just a business. Um, all the same principles of running a business apply to real estate investors who flip houses or do rentals or do wholesaling. Um, and if you understand the basics of business and you can really get good at the basics of business, being able to build a great product, being able to market and sell that product, being able to streamline, being able to manage employees, being able to manage cash flow, being able uh, to manage supply chains, being able to deal with operations, being able to do cash flow forecasting, all of these things that good business owners can do. If you're a real estate investor and you can do those things, your real estate business is going to be a hundred times better than if you just go out there and say, I'm just going to flip a house and not really think about the back end of stuff, not really think about the business perspective of it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like uh, it, the, the real estate is just kind of the vehicle. It's just the widget. It's the thing. And a lot of people fall in love with the real estate. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing for them. Like find out what you're passionate about and jump into that. And so what I found along my journey is at first I was kind of passionate about the real estate. I was taking something ugly and making it nice. And that was interesting to me. And now I feel I'm way more passionate about my team and my staff and leadership and, and building a company and a business and those kind of things, as opposed to like, I really don't care about the houses anymore. Like I, sometimes I feel guilty for saying that, but that's just the thing that now what I'm passionate about is how do I figure out how to make my my leadership staff make more money than they ever have, be fulfilled in their life, enjoy what they do. And I've gotten to a place now where I don't have to work in that company anymore because I've hired a COO. I've been able to pull myself out and he runs the day-to-day -day operations. And I just have to meet with him for about an hour and a half a week. But I get to do the cool stuff that I love, like, um, like cast the vision of where we're going in the future and do the big deals and stuff like that. So so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the business side of things because it, that's where you live. That's your world. I, that's the stuff that I love to talk about. And it's a lot of times we're so stuck in the tactics and the, the exact strategies and like how do we get these houses under contract that we forget sometimes about the business aspect of it. So if somebody's getting started, I think if they have this, they listen to this podcast and they have this idea, it's great. If somebody's already running their business somewhere where they're growing and scaling, this is going to be a great thing to talk about. And then if somebody's already where they are, like me, where we're at a place where we've kind of removed ourselves from the business. Sometimes we need that reminder um, because it's very easy to get stuck in the, like the get complacent, if you will, when you get to that point. So um, you did a couple posts on your Facebook page and I thought it would be kind of fun to go through those and just talk about those, um, 
those different steps that you talked about. You basically said, if I could go back in time and talk about like what I learned the hard way to give it to you guys, um, here's, here's some steps that you need to follow. And I read, I read all of them and I was like dead on, dead on, dead on. It's a lot of the stuff that we talk about here on the podcast, but sometimes like with my kids, it's a lot, it's really nice when they hear it from somebody else and not just me all the time. So let's go through, um, if it's okay with you, go through some of those kind of step-by-step. Step. that work? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, I'll, I'll just let you kind of take it away. If you, if you don't have them in front of you, I'll kind of prompt you. But the first one is one that I really struggle with and it's kind of saying no. So. Yeah. So, and this is one I struggle with as well. And um, I think a lot of people struggle with it. Basically you need to be saying more in your life a whole lot more often. Um, too many of us like to, and, and I get it. I mean, I was, I remember when I started investing and I wanted to flip houses. I wanted to wholesale houses. I wanted to buy rentals. I wanted to do businesses. Uh, I wanted to invest in businesses. I wanted to do everything. And what do we do when we want to do everything? We say yes to everything. We kind of let every opportunity into our lives. Uh, the problem there is that one, many of those opportunities never pan out. So we end up spending an inordinate amount of time focusing on things that never really contribute to our success. Um, and then number two, um, even if these things do contribute to our success, we say yes so many times that we've spread ourselves so thin. We're doing 10 different things. If we're working 40 hours a week, that's four hours a week for everything we're doing. You can't, have, you can't start a flipping business in four hours a week. You can't start a wholesaling business in four hours a week. You can't invest in another business in four hours a week. These things, at least at first, I mean, hopefully if you do things right, you can get to the point where you can put anything on autopilot. Um, but when you're starting out a new venture, you can't invest four hours a week. You've really got to put your whole heart and soul into it. And the best way to do that is really when you're early in a new venture, a new startup, a new initiative, whatever you're doing, being able to say no and being able to turn down things, even if they might be good opportunities, being able to turn things down so that you can focus on what you're doing is the key to really making that thing you're doing successful. A lot of people seem to think that the idea or um, the whatever the concept that you come up with, that's the key to success. If I can come up with a great idea, um, I can be successful. If I don't come up with a great idea, I'm not going to be successful. Ideas are a dime a dozen. And at the end of the day, um, there's, there's really, there's no such thing as a good idea or a bad idea. Certainly there are some ideas that are, that are, that are really good. There's some ideas that are really bad, but 80% of ideas are kind of neutral. And what's going to make them successful isn't the idea itself, but your implementation, your execution of that idea. And to really execute, you need to spend time. And too many people, they don't want to spend the time. They say, oh, this isn't working. This idea must not be good enough. No, most likely the idea is good enough. It's that you're not devoting the time or you're not devoting the time correctly to making it a successful venture. So first thing I tell people is be able to say no, focus on one thing, maybe two things early on and don't spread yourself too thin. Uh, great book on the topic is The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papazan. Um, and it, it, for anybody that hasn't read it, absolutely read it. It'll change your life. Um, but yeah, the biggest thing, and again, just like you, I'm really bad at this. Um, but the biggest thing that'll help a lot of people out there is just getting comfortable saying no. And let me tell you something, it's hard. Um, but what you realize is that saying yes is generally for somebody else. Saying no is generally for yourself. And as entrepreneurs, it's important that we think about ourselves. It's important that we think about our families. So don't think about saying no as a reflection of the other person. Think about saying no as something you're doing for yourself. Yeah, I, there's like two things on that that I hopefully will help the listeners. One is um, somebody told me one time, if, if you say, if, instead of saying yes or no, just think about if I say yes to something, I'm saying no to something else. And if you put that something else as being something that you really care about, like your family, like every time I say yes to something, I'm saying no to my family, like spending time with my family, whatever your why is, if you say like saying yes, you think about it that way, then it's, it becomes easier to say no. The second thing that I've noticed in saying no a lot more lately, and I've had to do it a lot is because, you know, it just like you, Jay, we probably get like a lot of emails and Facebook messages and all these things and people want our time. And so when I said no to people recently, they respect that. They really appreciate it where I'll give them a response and say, hey, I'm sorry, I just really have to focus on what I need to do right now for my community, for my family, for me. And they say, I totally respect that. Like, and thank you for the response. So a lot of times, like, it, that's that 
that like feedback loop for me has allowed me to say no and understand that that's okay. Um, yep. All right, what's the and, second and you one? Can also, you, you, you can also, and real quick, you can also say yes, but. Um, you can also say yes, maybe I can do that but put constraints around it. So for example, I get asked to do a whole lot of podcasts and my typical response when I get asked to do a podcast is, yes, I'll do it, but I can't guarantee that I can do it this week or next week or the week after. Let's get, let's build a queue. And then I set aside a certain amount of time a week to do podcasts. And so for me, it's kind of that I like to say yes, I don't want to say no, but this allows me to kind of control the yes and it's a compromise. So it doesn't always have to be like you said, yes or no, there, there are compromises in there but make sure that compromise is focused more on you than the other person because ultimately you need to be successful first for yourself and your family. I like that a lot. The, the next one is uh, money is not the goal, you said. So let's jump in there. Yeah, I, I think exactly what I said was money's not the goal. Uh, money is just currency that you use to achieve whatever goals you want to achieve. Um, and um, and that's, that's a really big point that I think a lot of people don't get until they actually have money. Um, I know I grew up without much money and, and, um, and so it was actually really good for me because I, I don't think I ever took it for granted. Um, but I realized once I started to accumulate some money was that the money itself wasn't making me happy. And I, I think a lot of people, they, they kind of have that, that, surface level knowledge that, yeah, the money doesn't make you happy. It's what the money does for you that make it, makes you happy. Um, but it's not the stuff the money buys for you. It's not the, it's not the trips. It's not the, the toys. For me, the money is really, it's a security net. It's a safety net. Um, and it helps me sleep better at night. Um, money is that thing that allows me um, to feel, and I use the term, I think in the post settled, um, money is the thing that allows me, um, to be confident that whatever I need to do, I can do it, it. It's a tool. And too many people, they kind of go out, they look for money and they start to accumulate money and they get more and they get more and they get more and they never stop and ask, what is the purpose of it? And until you think about what the purpose is, how do you know how much you have to have? And I know it's easy when you're single or, or when you're young, it's easy to say, well, I just want more. Um, but as you get older, you realize, I mean, life is, is finite. We're only going to be around for a certain amount of time. And what really matters is people. And what really matters is relationships and family. And so to, to kind of really analyze what money can do for you um, and what you want that money to do for you kind of gives you a perspective. I see so many people that are in their 40s, in their 50s, and they're still trying to chase every single dollar. Um, and it just, I, I think at some point they're going to look back and they're going to say, why? What was the value there? Um, what, why, why didn't I slow down? So um, it, it's really important that you don't think of money as like, yeah, I just want more of it. But think about what you're really going to use that money for. Think about what it can provide you. Think about what it can provide your family, your life, your friends. Um, and, and, and then kind of just put things into perspective. You know, when I, when I started this business, it was about money. Um, you know, I, I was looking for another income to decide if I was going to leave the military or stay in the military and retire. And then it became more, then I just, it, uh, just sucked my time in. So I ended up working that second full-time job, right? And I told my wife the first year, I said, look, I'm going to commit to this business. Like you said in the first one, I need to put in the time. I actually need to do the work. So I was getting up early, 4 a.m. every morning, working for two or three hours in the office. Same thing in the afternoon, every weekend. And I was putting in the work. And then it started to, started to grow and started to take off. And then it became less about the money as the money started coming in. It became more about my time, like getting my time back now and then bringing on people. And then after that, once I got my time back, it became more about kind of the impact. And I think that journey right there is probably most people's journey as they see. And now it's not about the money at all. Like the money's great, and it, but it allows us to do other things that we wouldn't normally be able to do, like impact others. Like we were talking about where I, I really just love to pour into my employees and my staff and those kind of things. And we're changing their lives and the seller's lives and all the other people that like listen to this podcast. And like we were talking about pre-show, your book, how it kind of changed my whole journey and trajectory. Had I not picked that up, I don't know if I would have gotten through that first project. And then who knows what this community would have looked like. So it's very interesting to see all of these things along the way. But that money now is just like you said, it's, you're exactly right. If you're doing it just for the money, it's just not going to be fulfilled. It's not going to be the, your path, I don't think. And it's okay. I always tell people, it's okay for it to be about the money right now. Sometimes like in the beginning, oh, yeah, for me, absolutely. it was about the money, right? I, I, needed the, I needed that. And then, so I started to see that as progress and then I could, I could keep moving and keep going and start growing. So 
Yeah, and, and I'll say this. I, I think I first realized this shift um, one day. It was probably, I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s. And, and I thought to myself, like, I, we, we, I, I was the typical, yeah, one day I want to be a billionaire. We all want to be billionaires. That's kind of it. I remember as, as eight-year-olds, we want to be millionaires. But as 20-year-olds, we want to be, be billionaires. Um, and I remember the day it hit me that I could never, ever, ever be a billionaire. Because if I got anywhere close, I, I can never be a hundred millionaire. I can never be a 50 millionaire. Because if I ever get anywhere close, I'm slowing down. And the people that are billionaires, they don't do it for the money. If you're doing it for the money, you're never going to get there. They're doing it because they just have this, this, this drive that they have to win. For them, it's just a game. Um, and if you become a billionaire, you're, you're not in it for the money. You're in it to win the game. And for me, it, it really is. It's, it's about having the money to, to take care of my family, to take care of my friends, to be able to give back. Um, but if I got to 40, $50 million, I'm slowing down. I'm going to go buy an island. I'm going to go hang out. So I'm the first person to admit I could never be a billionaire. I can never be a hundred millionaire. It's just not in my personality. I think a lot of people are that way. They say they want to be a billionaire, but the first time they get to a million dollars, they're like, okay, well, I'm going to go sit in front of the TV or I'm going to go take a vacation. So it's better to be realistic about what the goals are. And I think for that, for me, that was a big realization um, that it really, it wasn't about the money at that point. It was, it was, it was about what the money could do for me. Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's an interesting discussion that could probably be another hour of you and I talking together because that's what I look at it like. I know my personality very well and we talk about personality profiling and stuff like that. I, I've learned who I am over the last five years, six years, a, a lot. And I know that money's kind of like a scoreboard for me and I'm very, like, very aggressive when it comes to playing the game. Like I play to win. Everything that I do, it's, yep. it's a, a problem that I have to deal with. So, um, and I know that that's what it is. And I always say like if I had 10, $20 million in the bank, I, who can I lend it to at 8% and just relax? But I also know that I'm not going to relax. I, so I know myself well enough to know that um, I, love, I love sitting on a beach somewhere, but after about six or seven days, like, I'm ready to get back after it. So let's go so on. To number so what you're going to end up doing is you're going to get that 10 or 20 million. You're going to lend it out at 8%. And then you're going to go figure out what you want to be doing, whether it involves money or not. Not saying you need to sit on a beach. I could never sit on a beach for, for more than 10 minutes at a time. Um, but just it's, it's a metaphor for being able to do whatever you want want. I'll continue working forever. Um, but I find that the more money I get, the less that that's a motivating factor in how I'm working and what I'm doing. You're exactly right. Because, you know, with the real estate business, I started to get to the point where I was like, okay, we're at a place. Uh, it's time for me to move out. And then I can start doing this, which I love, like the podcast, uh, digital marketing, like uh, events, speaking from stage, doing all of those things, motivating other people to get out there and, and do something, put on a, a veterans event like we're doing, giving away houses, like figuring out how to do all that stuff. That's what drives me now. And I do it because I want to do it, not because I have to do it. And that's always been my goal. I said, when I was flying, I'm going to fly forever as long as I'm still having fun. And then I'm going to go figure out the next thing. And it's always like that kind of next thing. But that's a challenge a lot of us entrepreneurs have because we get to the peak of whatever we're doing. We look across and we see another peak that's a higher peak and say, I want to be over there on that peak. And then we start at the bottom and kind of climb back up. So that's, uh, that's the challenge that we have. But that's also, I think, what life's about. That's the fun part of what we get to do is, you know, we get to build stuff. And having an engineering background, I love to do that. I love to build stuff. And then eventually the problem is we kind of, get bored with it and move somewhere else. So I think that's something that we just have to be conscious of on a regular basis as entrepreneurs for sure. Yep. Okay. So number three, um, it's unlikely that you're going to make money doing something just because you love it. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, but the second part of that is just as important as the first. And it's that you're also unlikely to make money if you do, if you don't love what you're doing. Um, so it's kind of a double-edged sword and no, it's not a contradiction. Um, if, if you try and do something simply because you love it, it's probably not going to work out. Most of the things we love doing aren't going to make us money. I mean, there are a million things I love doing, um, and most of those aren't going to make me money. By the same token, the stuff that does make me money, if I don't really love it, I'm not going to do it well enough to be successful. So you need to both love what you're doing, but you can't do something just because you love what you're doing. In, in, in engineering, we often refer to it as loving what you're doing is a necessary but not a sufficient condition. Um, in other words, you have to love what you're doing, but that can't be enough. Um, so typically what I find, the stuff that, that I 
every time an opportunity comes across my desk, the first thing I ask myself is, is this something that I would enjoy doing? If it's with somebody, is this somebody I would enjoy working with? Um, if it's a new industry, is this something that I would enjoy whatever it entails? Maybe it entails traveling. Maybe it entails um, risk. Maybe it entails uh, learning a new skill. Maybe it entails doing something I've never done before that's scary. Am I going to enjoy that challenge? If the answer is no, I don't care how good of an opportunity is, I throw it away. If the answer is yes, then I go to the next step of actually analyzing and, and, and determining if that opportunity is a good one. So for me, uh, the love of something, too many people say, I love, um, what is it? I love riding my bike. Therefore, I'm going to figure out a way to make money riding my bike. No, it doesn't work that way. Um, figure out what's going to make money and then ask yourself, do I love this? If the answer is no, don't do it. Um, but again, love is kind of the, the, loving what you do is kind of the gate to saying yes. It's not the, the, the final question. Yeah, I, this, this one takes me to the uh, Jim Collins Good to Great book. So yeah. uh, passionate about it, um, monetary you have the ability to make money there, right? And yep. you're, you have the ability to be the best in the world. So where these yep. three circles combine, like that is where you want to live. And we just had a mastermind meeting that we did on our cruise. And I, I gave a presentation on that book specifically. And that was the big wake up call for me. I hadn't read it in a long time. I read it in my, the early years of my journey in real estate. And then I came back to it now. And it's so interesting when you read these books that how you see different things wherever you are in your journey, you know? And this one was one I had to read with the hedgehog concept and these, uh, these three circles. And I think you, you nailed it dead on. Like, you've got to be, somehow be passionate about this thing, right? Like, this is, this is very important that you're passionate about it because it, it can, it's a challenge a lot of times. It can, you, get, you hit a wall, you run into that wall over and over again. If you're not passionate about it, then you're just going to quit. So exactly. um, the next one is interesting because... Um, I think this is one that most of our community has no problem with, um, but I, I really do like it. So the desire to look wealthy is a detour on your road to being wealthy. So um, I love this one. Yeah. So uh, this one basically goes without saying anybody that's on social media. Um, it's funny because I was around well before social media, but I don't remember if this was a problem. I mean, obviously it's always been a problem, but I think social media has kind of exacerbated this idea of people, they spend so much time trying to portray um, a, a lifestyle or a personality or an agenda um, that they don't actually spend the time building that lifestyle style or that personality or that agenda. Um, there's a lot of fakeness that goes on and, and that if you want to do that, that's great. Um, but keep in mind, the more effort you put into building a persona or building a lifestyle for show, uh, the less time you're actually spending building that real lifestyle. And I find too many people on, on Facebook that like they'll come and they'll send me an email or they'll send me a message asking for help with something. Um, and I'll go back and look at their Facebook feed and I'm like, why is this person asking me for help? I mean, if I look at their feed, they're driving a $300,000 car, they're living in a $5 million mansion. Um, obviously they're not, but they're working so hard to portray that, that image um, that it's, it's detracting from their ability to actually achieve those things. Um, so what I like to tell people is, look, there's nothing wrong. All of us start at the bottom and there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I'm, I'm a beginner and I haven't been successful, whatever it is. Look, if, if I were successful at everything I did, I'm not challenging myself enough. I went out this week and what, a few months ago, we started a new business in a space I've never been in. This week, we just put our first business under contract to purchase um, and that's scary. And I'm the first to say, I mean, everybody is like, oh, you're, you're the expert at buying and selling businesses. No, I'm not. I've done it a couple of times, but this is like, I'm a beginner and I'm not an expert and I'm learning. And that's the reason I make these Facebook posts because, hey, come learn with me and come see the mistakes I make. Um, you can't be ashamed of the fact that you're starting out because we all start out. And if you have such an ego that, that you're not going to be willing to admit your mistakes and admit that you're learning and admit that you're new at something, then you're never going to get good because your ego is going to keep you from really learning as you go, go along. Um, so, so don't let the, don't let perception interfere or the, 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 the desire to project a certain image interfere with your actual ability to achieve that. Yeah, I really like this one. It take it seems like every one of these has a book that I that I have read that have like created this in me. And the Millionaire Next Door is the one that comes to mind here. Like I absolutely love that book. Well, I read it very early on. 
in my like financial investment world when I was still investing in the stock market a lot. And just, that's kind of how, like, I've always seen people in my, my life. They, like my dad, my, so my dad, we didn't have a lot of money when we were growing up. And then my dad eventually started this engineering company in Howard County, actually. And he, um, by the time I was about 18 or 19, their business started doing pretty well and was worth a couple million dollars probably. And, um, and he became like, got to that success level. But my dad always would, he always just had like the gadgets. So he'd have like the new computer or new phone and stuff. But we drove, our car was like 20 years old all the time. It was, he's, he never goes shopping. He's the most humble guy. Even now he's buying like his, he buys his jeans at Walmart and stuff. And so it's always been the, the world that I kind of grew up in. And, and what I loved when I, when I joined this kind this group in this community in the beginning was when I went to that first meeting for me and I saw people that were making million, like a million dollars a year. I've never even heard of that before in my life. I thought making $150,000 a year was like, that was it. When I got there, I was going to be really happy, right? That's the, the, top, uh, the top earner that I've ever met. And they were wearing shorts, t-shirts, flip-flops. If I was sitting next to them on an airplane, I'd have no idea about anything. It's not gold chains and Ferraris and stuff. It's 15-year-old Acuras and t-shirt and shorts. And I was like, you know what? I found my place. Like I found my people. How can I figure out? Because they're humble and they're authentic. And I think authenticity is the thing that we've lost a lot of, especially like you mentioned with social media. So it's, um, it's interesting. This is my, definitely my, one that drives me nuts. We, we moved to Florida last year and my wife, when we got here, um, so my wife and I, we used to drive nice cars when we were in, in, the, in the tech industry. And then we started a family and we realized that the whole money thing is, it's an illusion and, and, and we didn't need to prove anything to anybody. And so I had a 20-year-old car up until last year and we have an eight-year-old, our main car is an eight-year-old Mitsubishi. And uh, when we got here, my, my wife said, I really want to get a nice car again. I was like, great get whatever you want. Um, you know, she never, she's very frugal. And she said, I just, I just want a convertible. And I said, great, go get whatever you want. And she came back two weeks later and she had bought a 2008 Sebring convertible, um, with 90,000 miles that she paid $3,700 for $3,700. And like, this is when I knew that I picked the right woman. Like this car makes her more happy than any car makes any person on the planet. And she paid less than $4,000. And, and it, it's really, it's just an indication that it's not the money that makes you happy. If, 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 if you need an expensive car or an expensive house or an expensive anything to make you happy, my guess is those expensive things aren't going to make you happy. Um, and so, yeah, it really is. It's, it's just about um, uh, being comfortable in who you are and, and not, not trying to put on an act. I love that. Uh, that's, 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 my, that's my kind of lady right there. We have a lot in common. I don't know that I've bought new clothes in, in years. It's just not my thing. Um, so if, if the amount of money you earn, number five, if the amount of money you earn is limited by the number of hours you work, you'll never be wealthy. So this, we're kind of like, this kind of like ties right into what we're talking about, right? Yeah, this is, this is the difference between an employee and, and an investor or business person. Um, if you're earning your money hourly, if, if you can put in, if, if, if what you're doing at the end of the day, you're getting a salary, you're making X dollars an hour, or maybe you're a consultant, or maybe you're a high-priced W-2 earner like a doctor or an attorney or a consultant. A lot of times I see people making two, three, four hundred dollars $400 an hour, um, but they're still a slave to their time. My attorney charges me $450 an hour. And if she's not working, if I'm not, if, if she suddenly loses all her clients, she's making zero. So $450 an hour seems pretty good, but she has to keep that going. She's on the hamster wheel. Um, and if she ever stops, she stops making that money. The people that are truly wealthy are the ones that are generating income. And I, I know it's cliche to say, but it's, it's the people that are generating income in their sleep. It's when you wake up in the morning and you've made more money than you had the night before. Um, it's the people that get the quote unquote mailbox money and don't get me wrong. We all have to start. There's two types of income. There's active income and there's passive income. And the only way to get to the passive income is to create the active income. And what I mean by that is you have to work either a job or consultant or flip houses or do something where essentially you're trading your time for money. 
but the smart people are taking that money that they're generating through the active income and they're plowing it into some passive assets that are throwing off cash flow. And this is the reason why I absolutely love flipping houses. I absolutely love wholesaling because for me, that's the method. That's the, that's the, the process by which I can take that cash and I can put it in the stuff that allows me to make mailbox money, that allows me to make money while I sleep, rental houses and, and other cash flowing assets. Um, and so what I tell people is you, you have to have both. You trade your time for money until you have enough money that that money is earning money on its own. And so when, when people say, I get the question all the time, should I be flipping houses or should I be doing rentals? I'm getting ready to jump into real estate. I don't know whether I should flip houses or, or do rentals. And for me, that's kind of like saying, should I get Chinese food or should I go to the movies? They both, they're, they're very different things and, and their goals are very different. Um, active income flipping houses, for example, or wholesaling, that's a great way to build up pots of cash. The passive ac assets are the one, things that you take that, the, that pile of cash and you use it to create long-term cash flow. So what I tell everybody is figure out what your active income streams are. Is it going to be working a, a W-2 job? Is it going to be being a consultant? Is it going to be owning a business? Is it going to be flipping houses? Is it going to be wholesaling? For me, it was flipping houses. Um, and then figure out what your passive vehicles are. So are you going to plow that money into stocks? Are you going to plow that money into businesses? Are you going to plow that money into rental real estate? Are you going to plow that money into other cash flowing assets? Pick your active asset vehicles, pick your passive asset vehicles, and, 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 and work on both of those simultaneously. Um, but as soon as, if you can never get away from that active income, you're never truly going to be wealthy because the day you stop working, the money stops coming in. Yeah, this is, this is something that, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the rental houses versus flipping houses. Cause when I got started, I got started with rental houses and I would save up a bunch of money from my active income and I would put 20% down. I got a mortgage and then I had a rental and then it would be like another six months or a year before I could do it again. And so then I just kept running out of money over and over and over again. It just took forever. And so then I, you know, I finally realized other people's money was a possibility. So I started using some of that and then I would get, I would cash out refinance, but then it was like six months or three to, I finally got really good at it and I can, I could do a renovation, put somebody in it. I could do the burr strategy and get my money back out in like two or three months. And so then, but I still like just kept running out of cash over and over and over again. So that's when I flipped my first house. And then I said, Whoa, like I made $43,000 here. And then I did another one made 45,000. I was like, this is a lot faster. And then what, what I was able to do is I was able to take that money and then either reinvest in my business to grow that, which is what I started doing while, until it got to a point after about two years, it got to a point where it was spitting off cash for me as the owner. And so then I started saying, okay, is, is the single family rental space where I want to be in my passive income, like you're talking about, or do I want to go and invest in some syndications and commercial assets and things like that? So as, as money spits off for me, I figure out where do I put it? I do hard money loans. I put it in uh, commercial assets. I'm a general partner in limited partner now in like 3000 different units of storage units and commercial buildings that people have come into my world in my space. And then I've built relationships. I've helped them raise money. I've gotten percentage of equity for deals for raising capital. I've gotten percentage to, for don't, for putting my money into the pot, right. And investing as well. And so now what that does is just like you said, mailbox money, that's building equity, huge tax write-offs. I'm getting a check every month, every quarter, and I'm able to continue to build my my, the things that I'm really good at, like my house flipping business, my wholesaling business, this seven figure flipping business, those kind of things that can generate some active income. And then I'm enjoying doing, I don't think that I would enjoy doing like one or two big deals a year. I just not my thing. I like velocity and speed. I like doing 20 deals a month. I don't like doing one deal a year or one deal every six months and then having it fall out. And I spent $30,000 and I'm like, Oh, this is, it's, it's just not my, it's just not who I am. And I know that. So that passive income stream, I think is so important. Um, yeah. I love that. And the rentals, like for me, it's just single family rentals. Just that's where I started. I sold them all off. And I said, I, I have, I have like, I have like two right now that I still have that they're great. I say, what I say now is knowing what I know now, when the house comes vacant, would I buy this again at the price that I paid for it? And if the answer is no, then I sold it. And if the answer is yes, I kept it. Exactly. And that's the right question to ask. And I, I know so many investors, so many house flippers, wholesalers that come to me and say, Hey, I'm making a million dollars a year. What's the next step? And I'm like, well, you've gotten halfway there. The other half is to actually figure out how to take that money and put it somewhere that next year or five years from now or 10 years from now, you don't have to be flipping houses anymore. 
I still flip houses. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but every time I flip a house, my goal is to take X percentage of that income. And for me, it's about half. I try and take X percentage of every house I flip, 50% of every house I flip, and put that into something that's, that's cash flowing for me. So if I can make, let's say I just make $100,000 a year off of flipping houses. If I make $100,000 a year, if I'm taking half of that, $50,000 and I'm putting it into something that's generating 10%, every year I'm adding $5,000 to my, to my annual cash flow. And it doesn't seem like a lot, but $5,000 compounds pretty quickly. Go plug in a compound interest calculator and, and $5,000 a year, adding $5,000 a year at 10% compounded, and you're making a lot of money quick. And let me tell you something, a lot of us are making a whole lot more than $100,000 a year, but you don't have to. Even if you're just flipping two, three houses a year part-time, you can get to that passive lifestyle. You can build up enough passive income that you can live basically with, without a job in just a few years. So it, it's, it's really important that, uh, that you don't just do the flipping, you don't just do the wholesaling, but you actually take the cash that you're making. Don't buy nice things at first. Reward yourself every once in a while, but take that money and reward yourself by buying cash flowing assets. Yeah, I think knowing who you are, like, are you a spender or a saver? Because I'm a huge saver. And like, when you say $5,000 a year, I'm like, yes. Because like, what I see is that, that at first, it doesn't seem like a lot, but you have to have a little bit of patience. So I know most of us entrepreneurs don't have patience either. So that's the other struggle that we, that we run into. So you have to have that patience to then, um, to then say, okay, this is going to build. And that's what I saw. Once I got to like three rental houses, I, that's when I moved my money from the stock market over to real estate, like a lot of it over from the stock market to real estate, realizing that I can actually, I can have input in this. I can actually do something here. It's, I can control this and I'm investing and betting on myself. So, okay, we're through five of these. Here, here's what I'd like to do. Um, and I'll talk to you after the show and make sure this is okay. But I'd like to jump into part two. So you have like another 10. So you have 10 and 10. So I'd like to save these bottom five and these other bottom five. And what we'll do is we'll kind of drive them over so they can go look at the next five, like six okay. through 10. And we do the, uh, the next five because we're kind of on a lightning round. I know we might run out of some time here. So let's jump into the other five because I think some of these are, um, are interesting, especially in our world. What I found was some of this, like the first one is, is the only reason why I was able to grow my business because um, everybody else had already figured it out. And for years and years and years, I was that hamster on the wheel saying, I need to figure out how to do all this stuff myself. Um, I remember, I, you know, I, I met, I kind of came into your world from Bigger Pockets. They interviewed me on the podcast like way, way, way back. And I listened to that the other day and I was building a website myself for my flipping business and it took me like three months and I thought I had this awesome website. I was going to get all these leads and I don't think I've ever bought a house from my website still that I created because I don't know what I'm doing, but I was learning WordPress and I was building the site and I was doing all this stuff and it felt like progress to me. And so I was, I, I struggled with that my whole life. Like I got to figure out how to do it as an engineer. Like how does this work? How does this happen? So your first one of the second part is the fastest way to build a, a successful business is to copy off someone else who's already done it. And no, this is not unethical. So let's talk about that real quick. Yeah, I, I talk to so many people who think that the only way to make a lot of money is to be like Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, where you're creating something completely new and never seen before and you're launching in a new industry or um, people think you got to be first um, to, to, to really win something. And what I like to tell people is, yeah, that's one way to make money but that's the really, really high risk way. For every Elon Musk out there, there are millions of people who want to be Elon Musk, um, but you never hear about them because that thing that they've invented or that, that, that business they've tried to create out of, out of thin air um, just isn't successful. So what I like to tell people is, if you really want to be successful in business, find a business model that works, find somebody that's doing something that works and copy it. Because if it's working once, it's going to work again. Now, there's corollaries to that. You don't just, you either need to be cheaper or better in addition to, to copying something. But at the end of the day, good business models are replicable. And if there's only one person that's doing X, well, X probably isn't a very good thing. That's how you know that a business model is successful when everybody's doing it. Now, you don't want to be the 10 millionth person doing it. You don't want to do something if you don't have a competitive advantage. I, I talk all the time about how, yeah, you probably shouldn't be starting an online business. 
um, if you want to go online and, and do affiliate marketing or you want to open an Amazon store, nothing wrong with that, but there are so many people doing it. Unless you can be cheaper or better, you're probably not going to be successful. Uh, but go find another business model that you're, you're not the millionth person, but you're also not the first or second or third. Figure out what's coming up. Copy somebody else's business model. You said you picked up my book when, when, when you started. Um, my book was essentially my business model. And I never once thought, oh, I invented this business model. I copied off of somebody else. I talked to other investors, hundreds of other investors before I got good at flipping houses. And I basically took all the best from all of them. And then I added a little bit here and there. I always tried to have a competitive advantage. Um, but I, I wasn't the first person to flip houses. And I wasn't the first person to write a book on flipping houses. My book's become very popular because I think I did it well. Um, but there are a million people who probably did it better than I did. And there'll be a million people that do it better than I do. And hopefully there are people copying my, my, my business model and your business model. Um, because again, tried and true is, is, the way to, uh, is the way to reduce risk. And the reason so many people I think fail in business is because they put themselves in a position where their risks, they're taking more risks than they need to take. They feel like I can't be successful just copying. I have to do something different. And typically speaking, that's not the case. Nothing I've done in my life has been significantly different than, than what thousands or millions of people have done before me. Yeah. I, so I, I met a guy who was doing 20 houses a month, right? And I just basically used my engineering mind to take something from him and take something from three or four other people and just figure out how to make this Frankenstein model. I'm, I'm, I, I say it all the time. I don't feel like I've had an original thought in this business ever. Like I just yep. figure out what other people are doing and try to do it a little bit better or try to do it my way or test and modify and adjust. And so I'll, I'll, I'll test something. I'll hypothesize what's going to happen. I'll look at the output and then I'll decide how to tweak something. And like the way that certain people's marketing channels work in their markets might not work in mine, but I'm going to try it. I'm going to, I'm going to see how it works and then I'm going to make adjustments and track it along the way. So yep. I've, I, I've lived this. The reason that I have a business that's successful is because of this strategy right here. And I agree. It's not unethical. And the cool thing for us is it's not McDonald's. Uh, so we're not like hiding secrets in real estate, like flipping houses and wholesaling houses. Every market's different. People are willing to share some of their strategies and techniques. And there's a lot of, you know, real, real estate investment groups. There's online forums, there's podcasts, there's so much information out there. So, um, you know, you mentioned something about your book and I feel like I did. Like my first flip was I was drafting off of your business model, your pricing, your structure, all that stuff. Um, so what about, let's see, the second one. At the end of the day, being a successful entrepreneur boils down to only two skills, building a great product and being able to sell it. That is 95% of having a successful business, having a great product, being able to sell it. Too many people focus on things that aren't important. They focus on what's the name of my business going to be? How do I set up the LLC, the business cards, um, uh, the, the whatever it is. I mean, people waste time, but at the end of the day, none of that stuff matters. If you're not spending 90% of your time working on building a great product and as a real estate investor, our product is our houses. Our product is our customer service. Our product is our quality. You need to be spending 90% of your time focused on building that great product or marketing and selling it. Anything else is just wasted time. And I'm not saying that wasted time isn't important at some point. At some point, you need to figure out, do I need an LLC? At some point, you probably want business cards. At some point, you probably want that lawn sign that's going to help you generate more business. Um, but 90% of your time really needs to be focused either on the product or selling the product because that's what makes you money in business. I, when I picked up your book and flipped my first house, it was in my own name. When I did my second house, it was in my own name. All my rental houses were in my own name. Um, I'm not giving any business advice or uh, legal advice or tax advice on this podcast. But the biggest thing for me was I took action on the things that were going to generate income. I didn't get stuck. Fortunately, the first chapter of your book wasn't go start an LLC. Chapter two, build your website. Chapter three, get your business cards. Chapter four, go to a real estate club meeting and tell everybody that you need to build your buyer's list. It was it, like, just go flip a house, like go figure it out and go, go market. And th then when the problems arise, like you, there's lots of different ways to do this. And then my biggest thing is that's where you get stuck. That's kind of what I was talking about the how I'm trying to figure out the how 
to do things, not to who already knows how to do it and they could show me how to do it. So um, it's, it's huge. Marketing and selling, building the product, don't get stuck. That's where analysis paralysis lives for sure. Uh, number three, in business and investing, there are two sources of leverage, money and people. If you're not using both, you're underperforming. Yeah, so there are too many people that I've seen in business that, especially in the real estate industry, that they understand the power of financial leverage. They understand the, the power of using other people's money to make them successful, but they don't value enough the leverage of people, how using people, not using, using is a bad word, um, but how leveraging people and, 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 and taking advantage of, of having other good people out there can really uh, expand your business quickly. Too many people try and go it alone. Um, too many people try and do everything. They want to be the CEO. They want to be the COO. They want to be their contractor. They want to be um, their accountant. They want to be um, their, their, their own real estate agent. They want to be their own uh, interior designer, their own stager. Um, but what I like to tell people is you shouldn't be 99% of those things. You should be the guy or the gal at the top that's delegating and you should be finding a lot of really good people that can come in and that can do all those things for you. Just like you leverage cash, just like it doesn't have to be, we, we use the term OPM, other people's money. Um, it should be OPT as well. It should be other people's time. So bringing good people that can help you succeed because they're the experts. Bring in the great stager, bring in the great designer, bring in the great accountant, bring in the great contractors um, and leverage these people's expertise and efforts um, so that you can really grow your business. Don't try and do everything yourself. And, and so, and then there are some people that are just the opposite. They're really good at building businesses and bringing in good people, um, but they don't leverage money. Basically they, they grow very slowly. I'm not saying that people shouldn't do this um, for some people, no debt um, growing slowly is the right move. If you sleep better without debt, then by all means, sleep better. But if you're avoiding debt and you've never really thought about why you're avoiding debt, at least give that some thought. Because what I found is that you can, you can, you can use debt in a relatively low risk fashion and still achieve great growth and, 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 and great expansion in your business. So both sides of the coin. If you're not both leveraging people and money, um, you're probably not doing your business the, the, the service that you should be. Yeah, we talk about systems all the time and I feel like the people are my systems. Like I hate yep. to give away the secret, but the people are the systems. All of the automation and backend uh, systems and process procedures, all those things that we do are designed to reduce the workload of those people and to maximize the output of your human capital. And I was so afraid to hire that first person. So if you're listening, I know how that feels. Like I didn't want to do it. I said, no, it took me a week to get over it and, and call a bunch of my trusted advisors and, and then finally do it. And now I'm kind of addicted to it. And so leveraging like other people's time is so, so important. And, and they love it too. They're doing what they love to do, which is usually what you don't love to do and uh, are not good at. So instead of strengthening your weaknesses, figure out what the weaknesses are and fortify them with other people that are strong in those areas. So I I'm going to skip around. I know we only have a couple more minutes left, but I want to skip around to the, the next two because I think it's going to be really impactful for our community. So number seven that you wrote was want lots of money, stop focusing on your problems and start focusing on other people's problems. Because I think this is huge, especially in our business, in the wholesaling, house flipping, distressed market. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So, um, well, we can generalize this, but let's talk about real estate first. Like you said, um, our people think we're in the business of real estate. Um, good real estate investors are in the business of solving problems, solving people's problems. If you, if you go and look at any house you've ever purchased, um, you rely on purchasing that house generally under market value. And the reason you're able to purchase houses under market value is because you're providing a solution to somebody that has a problem. If you ever find a seller and they don't have a problem, if they're not in need to sell because of something going on in their life, most likely it's not a great deal. People aren't just going to hand you a, a property at below market value because they're kind. Typically, they're going to do it because you're giving them something that's more valuable than money at that point. 
or maybe it's the timing of the money. Maybe it's that, that they need the money, but they're willing to take less money because you can get it to them sooner. Or maybe it's not money at all. Maybe there's some other problem they're trying to solve. They're having relationship problems, or they're having business problems, or they're having job problems, and they need to get out of their house quickly. Typically speaking, as, as a real estate investor, your job is not to flip houses. Your job is to solve problems for sellers. And if you can do that, you're going to be a successful real estate investor. Um, and generally speaking, in, in business in general, if you want to know if a business is going to make money, the only question you need to ask is how many people am I going to, how many people's problems am I going to solve with this particular business? And if the answer is none, you're not making money. If you're going to solve a whole lot of people's problems, you're going to make a lot of money because that's what people pay for. They pay to have their problem solved. I love it. Nothing to add. This takes me to the Zig Ziglar quote, right? So it's uh, absolutely amazing. Like uh, you can have everything in the world, everything that you want, if you can just help out as uh, help as uh, more people get what they want, right? Yep. So I butchered the quote, but it's it's so true. Like when you in the beginning, you're always thinking about me, 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 me. What you really need to be thinking about, especially when you're sitting down with a seller or talking to them on the phone about their house, just what's going on with you? Like, how can I help you? And if we're not the right fit, I've always come from it uh, from an angle of if we're not the right fit for you, then let me try to help you find what the right fit is and be open and honest and upfront with people. That was the thing that drove me away from wholesaling in the beginning. Um, and then I started met, meeting really ethical wholesalers with integrity that are saying, hey, how can I help you? What can we do to support this? And realizing that they're making money by solving people's problems. Like the more people that we can help, um, then it comes back to us. The la last one that I want to cover real quick, and it's probably a great way to end it, is number nine. Give credit, take responsibility, never the other way around. So I absolutely love this. And in, in a responsibility I look at is responsibility and, and ownership. So one of my core values is extreme ownership. Phenomenal book by Jocko Willink. For anybody out there who hasn't, hasn't read it, we read that one and implemented it in our business and it has changed the game for us. So responsibility is so important to me. Yeah, I, I've, I've written a lot of books. I've written a lot of articles, a lot of blog posts. I wrote a blog post back in 2010 for Bigger Pockets. It was the first one I ever wrote uh, for Bigger Pockets. And it was all about if anything goes wrong in your business, it's your fault. And anybody that says that, that I, I mean, if, if you can, if something goes wrong in your business and, and you can't figure out a way to take ownership of it, if you can't figure out a way to make it your responsibility, your problem, your fault for it happening, you're not working hard enough. Um, I, I learned this lesson when I had a, a um, um, we, we had a buyer for one of our houses, mortgage broker basically strung us along for about three months, lied to us about the, the buyer being qualified, um, about the loan getting processed. And we get to the closing date, they push it off two weeks and, and we give them an extra two weeks and then they, they're still not ready to close. So we give them a couple more weeks before we know it. We dragged this out for three months. The markets dropped about 10% um, and this house took a long time to sell. And I got, uh, I took a friend of mine to lunch and I'm sitting there complaining like, the mortgage broker screwed up. The buyer lied to us. The agent lied to us, blah, 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 blah. And he's just sitting there staring at me and, and I'm just sitting there venting at the end. He goes, okay, so how can you avoid making that mistake again? Like, what are you talking about? I didn't make any mistakes. We got lied to us. The real estate agent was a, was a jerk and the, the mortgage broker was a jerk and they committed fraud and this and that. He goes, okay, great. So how can you avoid making this mistake again? And that's all he said. And, and then we started talking and, and he basically said, look, there's nothing that happens in your business that isn't your fault. I could think of a hundred things and looking back, I can now think of a hundred things I could have done to mitigate the risk of what happened happening. And by blaming it on the other person, basically I open it up to myself falling trapped to that again in the future. If I can't take responsibility and say, what are the 10 things I could have done differently so that that buyer couldn't have gotten away with lying to me or the mortgage broker couldn't have gotten away with lying to me or the real estate agent couldn't have gotten away uh, with lying to me. If I can think of 10 things I can do differently, then I'm going to implement those 10 things in my business and it's not going to happen again. But if I'm going to blame other people, if I'm going to kind of throw up my hands and play the victim, well, I'm going to be the victim over and over and over again. And so it's my responsibility. If it's my business, anything bad that happens in my business is my responsibility. And then going back to that, the, the earlier one where you have to leverage people, typically anything that goes right in your business is a function of the people around you. And so I'm a big fan of anything that goes wrong. That's my fault. I don't care who did what. 
it's my fault and I will always take responsibility. Anything that goes right in my business, somebody else is going to get the credit. If you treat your business that way, you're going to get the respect of your customers. You're going to get the respect of your vendors. You're going to get the respect of your employees. You're going to get the respect of your contractors. Um, and so uh, at, at the end of the day, you always have to give credit. You always have to take responsibility. That's it. Dead on. It takes me to that like Jim Collins wind, window and mirror from good to great. Uh, that I'm sure like you just got to take ownership of everything around you. And yep. I've, I've had people where I've, I've, I've failed with my staff, my employees. I hired the wrong person. A lot of times it's like, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Well, you hired that person to do that thing. Absolutely. Like you, you interviewed them, you did all that stuff. Like take responsibility for that. And yeah, granted it might be, you know, they might have some fault in there, but what can you do to make sure that doesn't change? doesn't happen again. I'm a flight instructor down at Pensacola still part-time and every student that I fly with, I say to them, guys, guys and girls make it, make all the mistake right now with me. So as an on-wing, we, we, they fly with me for the first time before they ever go solo and they do their check ride. So it's up to me to make sure that they're ready to do their check ride and solo for the first time. And I say, look, my responsibility here is for you guys to make every mistake. I'm going to give you every emergency procedure. I'm going to, I'm going to run the gauntlet here on you guys and I want you to make mistakes. It's okay. But I don't want you to make them over and over and over again. If you make a mistake twice, I'm going to be upset with you. And I say that to my, my kids, my, my, the people in my, in my company. It's like, don't make the same mistake over and over again. What can we learn from it? And a lot of that is, is taking all the information in and saying, okay, what do I need to change to not let this happen again and take responsibility for it? Th this one is huge for us in the interview. We're making sure that people aren't pointing the finger. A great question that we use that anybody out there can use is, tell me about the last deal that went south. Just like you said, you had a deal that didn't go well. Well, do you, did you, in the interview, do you blame everybody else while you're telling that story or do you take all the responsibility for it? It tells me right there if you have my core value or not. Are you saying, like my son right now, he's in this phase of, he's, he's turning six next week and he's like, I didn't do it. Like, I just saw you do it. Like, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me is really trying to figure out how, how do I, we make it very, a world where he can, he can admit to uh, problems and struggles and all of us being able to take responsibility for it. And what's interesting is once you do that, like, you know, what you say and what you do are two totally different things. So if you as the owner, like that kind of culture is going to come down. And if you're constantly complaining and pointing the finger and taking everybody else is going to follow. If you take responsibility, usually what happens is I'll take responsibility hundred percent. And then the, that my staff will say, no, 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 that was on me. It's hundred percent my fault. And we're basically like arguing over whose fault it is instead of blaming each other. Yep. So great place to be in. So I love that. Give credit, take responsibility, never the other way around. So, um, as a military man, I am over schedule and I don't like doing that. So um, I'm, let's, let's wrap this thing up. Jay, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, uh, like I said, uh, I'm, I'm thankful to you as being one of my early mentors, whether you knew it or not, most likely you didn't, but hopefully now you know that there's a lot of things that we don't see, the intangibles out there of all the things that we do, this ripple effect, this pebble in the pond kind of thing of writing books, uh, running podcasts, writing articles, the blog posts, all that stuff. Like people are out there watching and I'm incredibly thankful because uh, without you as part of my journey, it, it, I don't know where I would be right now. Um, and so I really appreciate that personally. And I think from our entire community of like thousands and thousands of people that will listen to this podcast, I know that you brought a ton of value to it and you continue to, to the real estate space and now the business space. So, um, where can people find you, uh, find out more about you? Um, and, uh, I don't know, what's the best place for, uh, for them to come get you? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, if you want to get in touch with me, so my email address, feel free to send me an email. I may not get back to you on day one or two, but I, I eventually uh, get back. Um, but my email address is letter J at jscott.com. Uh, you can check out my website at jscott.com. Um, if you are interested in becoming a better business person, and again, real estate investors, real estate, uh, um, uh, any, anybody in real estate is a business person as well as a real estate investor, um, check out my podcast. So my wife and I co-host The Bigger Podcast. It's business podcast uh, where we talk to entrepreneurs and experts in the business space. And, and uh, um, for me, it's uh, my, it, my real estate investing business has, has grown tenfold uh, just thanks to uh, some of the guests we've had on the show and talking about things that aren't real estate specific. We don't talk about real estate specific stuff on the show. We talk about building and growing and scaling businesses. Um, so check out the bigger pockets business podcast. And if you want to check out my books, I've got a few books. Um, they're kind of behind me on the wall. 
Awesome. The book on flipping houses, estimated rehab costs. That's the one that we were talking about the whole, uh, the whole interview so far. That's the one that I picked up. Fortunately, I was lucky enough to grab it, read it and implement it, right? To re- buying a book, reading a book is one thing. Actually implementing the tech- tactics and techniques and the strategies and all those things in there, that's a whole nother thing. So same thing with listening to the podcast. I think a lot of what we talked about is like, get out there and take some action, get out there and go and do. So uh, listen to Jay's podcast. I, I, there's been some incredible interviews on there lately. I've been listening to it. Um, really exciting stuff. Some, some actually really cool uh, stuff. Uh, I bet I, we can jump into another time. So, all right, Jay, uh, I can't believe you gave out your email address. The big thing that I'm going to say to you guys right now and ending this podcast is um, don't, please don't bomb Jay's email. Uh, so I, I've had some guests on the past give their email address out. The caveat I want to give you is make sure that it's important. Make sure that if it's a thank you, like those kind of things, don't expect a response. Like Jay is really busy, um, just like me. Like I really want you guys to, uh, if you've got something that's important that you want to reach out, but be respectful. We talked about it. We have trouble saying no. So the more times that you ask for things and, and do that kind of stuff and really think about how you're adding value to other people and how you're, um, you're getting a response and you're building that relationship. So treat them really well. If you're going to email them, make sure that you're adding value. You're doing something like that. You're not asking and take, take, take. So I know that we're a bunch of go-givers and, and people like that in the community and we don't have have a lot of takers that listen to this or follow us or, or come into our world. So, uh, Jay, I appreciate you um, coming on the podcast. I'm really sorry I went over. I don't like to do that. All good. All good. But um, enjoy your day, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so awesome. much. Thanks, Bill. All right. I told you guys that was going to be an amazing interview. I really enjoyed talking with Jay. We actually stayed on for like another 30 minutes afterwards, got to know each other even better. Um, huge inspiration in the beginning of my journey inside Flipping Houses and continues to be. I really enjoyed the conversation where obviously have – uh, very tight kind of core values that align together and um, just just a uh, really awesome guy. So I really enjoyed talking with him and I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the other 10. So we talked about his two lists and I'm going to take the other 10 bullet points and I'm going to put them in the show notes and I'll put them in the email that we send out to you guys. So if you're not already on our email list, make sure you go to sevenfigureflipping.com slash subscribe. Um, or you can go to sevenfigureflipping.com and just click on the subscribe link and you can subscribe to our email list to make sure that you get those. And uh, you get some updates from us about what we're doing, the podcasts that come out. And that seven-day flip series that we're doing with Tyler Jensen, I want to let you guys know that every week, so every Monday, we are launching a new episode at 8 p.m. Central, and it premieres on YouTube. So it's like a live TV show that comes out every Monday night at 8 p.m. Central. So mark your calendar. Every, every, weekend, or every Monday night, we'll have a new episode that comes out. And then Tyler and I are doing a YouTube live every Thursday. At, um, it'll be a different time the first Thursday. This uh, Thursday, May 28th is going to be at 4 p.m. Central. We're going to try to keep it at that time every week as long as it works for me and Tyler. So, um, and we're going to talk about the episode. So if you guys are listening to this on Thursday morning or Thursday afternoon at 4 o'clock today on May 28th, uh, 2020, we are going to be jumping into a YouTube Live and talking about episode one and answering all the questions and all the things that, that people have been asking us. And so if you have a question, make sure you email us, you comment on the YouTube Uh, video that we do and we'll answer it live for you guys or talk about it or dive in a little bit deeper there. So I'm excited to talk to Tyler about the first episode, hear a little bit more about his story, his family, his traumatic brain injury, all that stuff. So again, thank you so much, Jay Scott, for coming on the podcast today. I really enjoyed it. And make sure you subscribe to our email list, sevenfigureflipping.com slash subscribe and and our, our YouTube channel, of course, and make sure you turn the bell on so it alerts you that our new live videos are coming out. So thank you so much for spending time with me and I'll see you guys on the next podcast. You've been listening to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. If you're ready to learn the house flipping and wholesaling strategies that are working right now in today's market, check out sevenfigureflipping.com. 